Namaste, everyone. Welcome to Dharma Talk. This is your host, Shiv Baba, also known as Baba Shiva Ram Sarasvati. And today we're going to talk about something that is, you know, I, I try to keep these topics highly aligned with things that we can use in our daily lives that won't be just interesting spiritual curiosities, but things that we can actually put into practice. And uh, thus making this uh, hour that you've invested in listening to this show uh, a profitable hour. So today, I'd like to look at purifying austerities, or tapasya. Now, uh, let's see, where do you start? I think, I think the best way to describe purifying austerities is something wherein, uh, in Western terms, the ego is subjugated to a regimented, uh, very difficult practice. And in the subjugation of the ego to a, a quest with a divine intent, uh, you receive boons or, or blessings of different magnitudes according to the magnitude of, of the purifying austerities. So we'll get to that, to the specifics of what those involve uh, about mid-show. But let's talk about the source document we're going to explore in the context of uh, the question, how do we learn more about how purifying austerities can enrich our lives right where we are, uh, with or without a trip to India? So the Shiva Mahapurana has always been one of my fa favorite spiritual texts. Um, I guess in Western terms you could say that it is one of the uh, sacred scriptures of Shiva. But there's a distinction between the, the Eastern concept of sacred scripture and the Western concept, obviously. Um, I think most importantly, uh, you, don't, you don't look at a, a fidelity to a particular word-for-word -word document. Uh, for example, the Shiva Mahapurana takes on divergent forms depending on what part of India you're in. Uh, so you have a, a rather large collection of different texts that purport, ancient texts, that purport themselves to be uh, the Shiva Mahapurana, and they do have key similarities, word-for-word um, -word similarities sometimes, but then they have divergences. So the Shiva Mahapurana is an example of a sacred text. Uh, I think it's metaphorically similar to what the individual Hindu believes, or Sanatana Dharma devotee believes, which is that there are many paths to the same destination. So, in general, uh, we believe that the Supreme Divinity is going to manifest to each individual in a way that's most meaningful to them. And so, when we find someone who's looking for spirituality and hasn't yet found it, we say, well, the good news is there's only one kind of spirituality for you, only one spiritual path for you, and it's your path. And part of the, the adventure is finding out what that path is. So the Shiva Mahapurana exists in both unity and diversity uh, in terms of the, the literary, the extant literary uh, documents. Um, in the, the 20th century, there's been a lot of commentary on the Shiva Mahapurana's uh, uh, references, they weren't refer referring directly to Advaita Vedanta, but the similarities thematically are striking. Um, in particular, you have in the Shiva Mahapurana the Advaita Vedanta concept of uh, emphasis on theistic uh, uh, love of a deity, bhakti. Um, now, we don't have a reliable date for the Shiva Mahapurana, and we don't have an author for the Shiva Mahapurana. Uh, those are cloaked in the, uh, in the veils of time. 
but uh, we we do have we have a a good manuscript. We have a number of good manuscripts that we can study, and and by studying all of them, maybe get kind of a composite understanding of what this document is trying to teach us. Um, all, all of all of the Hindu Puranas have in common a heavy symbolic content. So, uh, in other words, these stories that we're reading uh, aren't necessarily, his, they're not meant to be historical accounts of the adventures of Shiva or, or Vishnu, um, but there, there are deep eternal truths that are embedded in these, in these scriptures. Uh, now, I've studied the Shiva Mahaprana very carefully, um, and so would I say that the, the events in the Shiva Mahaprana, quote, happened? Well, on some level they did. But, but really the reason Shiva's guided me to find this wonderful resource uh, is that there are a lot of truths that we can, we can read that are fairly easy. You, you don't have to have a PhD in Sanskrit uh, literature to understand it, even if it's a bad translation. Um, and then we can share those truths to others by referring to something that's to a book that's commonly available. Um, generally speaking, the the people of the period of the Puranas uh, believe that the the Puranas were an interpretation of the Vedas in the context of the current Kali Yuga, right? So we're living in a time that's characterized by conflict and selfishness and ignorance and a lot of dark, terrible things. As a result, in compassion, the deities have given us the tantras. The tantras are, the, they are themselves the Vedas reinterpreted for our very difficult age. And it makes sense. Uh, that, that the forms and emphases of, re, of religion, of religious or spiritual practice, would be uh, congruent with, with the culture of the people uh, offering those practices. And I believe that that's what the Tantra, the Tantras as a whole, that's what they do, is they give us the Vedic religion in a form that can be practiced in our current circumstances of being scattered and disorganized and divided uh, in, in, a, in a diaspora, right? The, the tantras are very, are very uh, portable because they're not based on one particular location. Uh, the tantras can go with me fully and completely wherever I go in the world. Uh, and I won't have to pack much luggage, just one small bag. Um, so the the Puranas were considered by the people of of the those that era uh, to be an interpretation of the Vedas for the Kali Yuga. Um, okay, so we're going to be working with an English. One of the things in the West that you're going to encounter trying to learn and practice Sanatana Dharma um, is that there's a language barrier. There's a huge language barrier. Uh, the the entry-level language requirement is um, hmm, a grad school-level understanding of Sanskrit. Then if you want to become really a great, transfer, uh, a, a great Hindu scholar, great Sanatana Dharma scholar, you probably should learn uh, not just Sanskrit, but at a minimum, uh, Bengali, uh, maybe you know, maybe two or three of the other regional Indian subcontinent languages. So let's say that we're looking to get some some verification that this is the lifestyle for us to get some some feedback from the universe that our spiritual efforts uh, are not in vain that we're we're following a path that has before resulted in success for people as, as far as a general approach. We can use these Victorian era 
translations uh, and look past the, the awkward language structure and look at the deep truths within them because these truths these truths are so powerful you're not going to get the full effect without looking at the stuff in in original languages but can you get enough to begin a practice that will give you some results that will confirm that this is a good investment of time and energy to make yes you can do that absolutely uh so tonight we're gonna we're gonna be using a victoria era translation of a manuscript of the shiva excuse me the the shiva uh mahapurana uh from the the bombay manuscript this is one of i guess about 12 manuscripts uh but I think this one, this, this one provides a, a good summary of the, the body of text. Um, so the emphasis you're going you're gonna to see in this, in this reading that, that I'm going to offer um, is we're, we're looking at the practice of bhakti yoga. That's one of the eight limbs of yoga that focuses on uh, finding liberation or achieving moksha through the love of a particular deity. So we have seven other choices, seven other paths, but this is one, and I think most practitioners end up choosing hmm, maybe three or four of the eight limbs and becoming very, very skilled in those yogas uh, rather than becoming, you know, trying to become masters of all eight. Um, and that, that seems to be more than sufficient in, in the masters that I have known. So I think I'll go ahead and start the reading, and then we'll add a little bit of interpretation and explanation as we go along. Uh, so here we are at the very beginning of the, the current uh, manifestation of the universe, this current cycle. And the, the text, be, uh, I'll jump into the text. A divine being named Rudra, who was none other than Shiva himself, was also born from Brahma. Rudra lived on Mount Kailash. Daksha's daughter, Sati, was married to Rudra, but Daksha and Rudra did not like each other. Daksha arranged a yajna, sacrifice, fire sacrifice, and he did not invite Rudra to attend this sacrifice. Although Sati was not invited either, she went to attend the ceremony. But Daksha insulted her so much that Sati gave up her life in protest. This so angered Rudra that he sent his companions to des destroy the sacrifice, disrupt the ceremony, and kill all the gods who had gone to attend it. This was done. But Rudra was subsequently pacified and brought the dead gods back to life. The sacrifice was completed. Sati herself was reborn as the daughter of the mountain Himalaya and his wife Manaka. She was known as Parvati, and she was again married to Rudra or Shiva. There was an Ashura, or demon, named Tara. Tara's son was Taraka. Taraka wished to defeat the gods. He therefore went to a place named Madhuvana and began to perform very difficult tapasya. He gazed at the sun and stood there with his arms raised. He stood on one leg, and that too, and that too only on the toes of his feet. A hundred years passed. For those hundred years, Taraka drank only water and had no food to eat. For the next hundreds, he gave up that also and lived only on air. A hundred years were spent in performing tapasya inside water, and another hundred years on earth, and a hundred years more inside fire. For a hundred years he performed tapasya, severe uh, austerity and penance, by standing upside down on his hands. And for yet another hundred years, he hung upside down from the branches of a tree. The meditation was so intense and formidable 
done with such great devotion and steadfastness, steadfastness that it extremely pleased Brahma. So he appeared before Tarakshura and said, I am pleased with your tapasya. What boon do you want? Tarakshura replied, If you are so pleased with my tapasya, then grant me two boons. The first boon should be that no one created by you should be as strong as I am. The second boon should be that I should be killed only by Shiva's son. Shiva at that point of time had no sons. Sati had died, and although she had been reborn as Parvati, she had not been married to Shiva yet. Brahma granted Tarakshura the two boons. The demon went to a city named Shanitapur and began to live there. All the other demons made Tarakshura their king. Thanks to the boon, Tarakshura was so strong that he easily defeated the gods. He conquered the three worlds and drove the gods out of heaven. He stole all their belongings and employed the gods as his servants. The desperate and despondent gods went to Brahma and asked him to find a solution to the terror, terror of Tarakshura and the problem this demon had created for the entire creation. Brahma expressed his helplessness and said, I can't. It is because of my boon that the demon has become so powerful. Besides, my boon says that Turakshura can only be killed by Shiva's son. Shiva has got to have a son. He is now performing tapasya in the Himalaya mountains. Parvati is also in that region. So you must do something so that these two fall in love with each other and marry to beget a son. The gods decided to follow Brahma's advice. But how could it be ensured that Shiva and Parvati fell in love with each other? The king of the gods was Indra, and the god of love was Kandarpa or Madana. Indra summoned Kandarpa and requested him, You have to help us. There is no other way out. Shiva is, is performing tapasya in the, in the Himalayas. Parvati is also in the region. Make sure that the two fall in love. That is what I request you to do to help the gods. Kandarpa went to the place where Shiva was meditating, and as soon as the god of love appeared, the place took, the place took on the traits of, spring, of a spring which was perennial. Flowers, bloom, <clears throat> flowers bloomed and bees buzzed among the flowers. Cuckoos sang and fragrant, bees, fragrant breezes started to waft through the forest. Shiva tried to concentrate on his meditation, but he kept getting distracted. While all this was going on, who should arrive there but Parvati? She was so beautiful that Shiva was smitten with love for her. Parvati also seemed to like Shiva, but life is never simple. Shiva was, after all, Shiva. He realized that something was wrong. How could his meditation have been disturbed? How was it that the season seemed to be spring, although it had no business to be spring? When Shiva glanced around, his eyes fell on Kandarpa, who was hiding. He realized that it was Kandarpa who was responsible for all this mischief. Shiva was angered. He had a third eye in the middle of his forehead, from this third eye, flames sprouted, and these flames burnt Kandarpa to ashes. Kandarpa's wife was Rati. When Rati saw that her husband had been burned to ashes, her grief knew no bounds. At first, she lost consciousness. When she recovered, she lamented and grieved woefully. Now, what is going to happen to me, my husband, my love? Where have you gone? The gods in Rati sought out Shiva. They explained that it had been no fault of Kandarpa's. He had been asked to disturb Shiva's tapasya because of the uh, Tarakshura problem. What would happen to Rati now? Shiva replied, what has, ha <coughs> what has happened? Nothing can be done about... Uh, what has happened has happened. Nothing can be done about Kandarpa now. He will eventually be born in the city of Dvaraka, as uh, Krishna's son, Pradyamna. 
Rati will then be reunited for, uh, with Kandarva. But till that time, let her simply wait. The gods dispersed, still desperate, anxious, and despondent. The matter of Shiva and Parvati's marriage had not, been, had not progressed at all. But Parvati had fallen in love with Shiva, and she didn't know what she could do about it. She thought of Shiva all the time. One day, the sage Narad came and told her, Shiva is only pleased with Tabasya. Without Tabasya, even Brahma and the other gods do not get to see Shiva. So, why don't you perform Tabasya? On the advice of Narad, Parvati decided to do what she was told, i.e., to do Tabasya in order to have Lord Shiva as her husband. She asked her parents for permission. Her father agreed with alacrity. Although her mother, Manaka, was not at all keen that Parvati should perform difficult tapasya, she too eventually agreed. Parvati gave up her beautiful jewelry and attractive clothes in order to lead a life of extreme austerity while she performed the penance to find access to Shiva. She wore only a deer skin instead. There is a peak in the Himalayas that was visited by Parvati for her tapasya. The meditation was very arduous and required a strong will to do it. During the monsoon, Parvati meditated while seated on the ground. In the winter, she meditated under the water. Wild beasts of the formidable forest dared not to harm her. All the gods and sages assembled to see this wonderful tapasya. The gods and the sages also began to pray to Shiva. Lord, can't you see that Parvati is performing difficult tapasya? No one has meditated like this before, and no one will meditate like this in the future. Please grant her what she wants. Shiva adopted the form of an old Brahmin, an old priest, and appeared at Parvati's hermitage. Parvati welcomed the old man and worshipped him with flowers and fruits. The Brahmin inquired, Why are you meditating so sternly? What is it that you want? Parvati replied, I wish to have Shiva as my husband. The Brahmin tried to dissuade her and test her sincerity and devotion for Lord Shiva by virtually rebuking her. You are indeed stupid. What what, What you are doing is like giving up gold for a piece of glass, or giving sandalwood for mud. Does, it, does anyone give up the water of the Ganga and drink water from a well instead? Marry one of the gods instead. Go and marry Indra. Shiv, Shiva is an abominable fellow, not fit to be your husband. He has three eyes and five faces. His hair is matted, and his body is smeared with ashes. He wears snakes as garlands. He is always accompanied by ghosts. He has no clothes and no wealth. No one knows who his parents are. He lives in the forest and his throat is blue with poison. I think you are making a big mistake. Forget about Shiva and don't waste your life. The Brahmin's words angered Parvati. She retorted indignantly and vehemently, It is you who are stupid. You don't know a thing about Shiva. He is the Lord of everything. You have insulted Shiva, and cursed am I that I made the mistake of worshipping you. You are again going to say something nasty about Shiva, but before you can do that, let me go away. I shall not stay to hear Shiva being insulted right before me in the way you are cursing, uh, causing insinuation to my beloved and adored Lord. As Parvati was about to depart, Shiva adopted his own form and said, Where are you going, my dear? I thought you were praying for me. You can't forsake me now. I am not going to let you go. Ask for a boon. Parvati replied, Please marry me according to the prescribed rites if you are indeed pleased with me and satisfied about my devotion and loyalty towards yourself. Shiva willingly agreed. And then Parvati returned home successful in her objective.
So here we have an example of, uh, I won't spoil the rest of the story about the, uh, the Ashura, uh, but here we have, I, I chose that section of the Mahapurana because it shows a problem being caused by an Ashura uh, that has devoted a great deal of effort to purifying austerities. And then we see toward the end of the passage that same problem on its, well on its way to resolution as Parvati uses purifying austerities. Um, and uh, in the text, it, it, it points out that even, even, the, uh, even Brahma and Vishnu cannot reach Shiva without purifying austerities. Uh, if Parvati can't reach Shiva without purifying austerities, I probably don't have much hope of doing it either. So that lets me know I'm going to have to do these purifying austerities. But what are they and why do I have to do them? Why is this built in to the spiritual path for everyone without any exceptions? Uh, well, it, it goes, you'll notice that these boons come, uh, if you read a lot of Hindu or Sanatana Dharma scriptures, you'll notice that there's a general pattern of a being becoming extremely powerful by purifying austerities being offered to Brahma, who is the creator of the universe. You have Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the maintainer, and Sh Shiva, the transformer. So Brahma is the creator, uh, not of reality, not of everything that is, as you would see in a Judeo-Christian uh, creation uh, account. Brahma is the creator of, of the Saha world, of the world of objects and relationships that we're in, right? Brahma, Brahma brought about the manifestation of duality in creation. And so the world we live in uh, is, is impossible without duality. It's inherently a, a dualistic world where you have good and evil, uh, right and wrong, uh, all kinds of polemics, right? Um, duality results from the pure, uh, from the manifestation of, of divine consciousness in, in, in the world of objects and relationships. Uh, that means that the, the, the perfect absolute of, of unity in the unmanifested Godhead or, or the, the supreme divinity is going to be uh, uh, broken into component forms like, like the two lenses of a, a set of binoculars. And in the, in the tension of the duality, we will have, we will it will generate the illusion of the universe. Uh, samsara here is, exists as a, a stage with a whole lot of stage props that we call possessions and a whole bunch of actors that don't realize that they're actors. All of us are incarnations of divine consciousness without any exception. And yet very few of us are even dimly aware that that's what our true identity is. So we create these arbitrary identities as we go through the develop, developmental stages of life and we cling to them as if they are real. So we create this identity matrix that's completely arbitrary. And the interesting thing about human personality is that as it goes through life, uh, it incorporates the feedback that that person thinks that they're getting from life into that identity, right? So if someone has a very unpleasant relationship, romantic relationship, they say, oh, well, you know, I guess I'm just meant to be alone. 
So it's a, you know, they adopt this deterministic identity where for some reason that we can't really specify, they are, quote, not meant to find someone. Uh, it's deterministic and it's, that's the kind of things that we go through and we, we feel like we're live, learning lessons from life. But what we're really doing is just trying to incorporate experiences into this patchwork quilt of an identity uh, that we call a personality. But what if we really are all incarnations of divine consciousness? In Western terms, all of us incarnations of God in varying stages of ignorance. What if that? What if that's true? If that's true, I don't need to create an identity. I have an identity, right? So my identity is that I'm a manifestation of divine consciousness. And that doesn't have to be elaborated upon uh, or specified by me. It's self-explanatory. Uh, but that's what this the purifying austerities do. They are built such built i believe by the deities in such a way as to chip away at the lie of the false self of the arbitrarily constructed self right um in psychology i think uh, a, a lot of clinical psychologists spend a great deal of effort trying to um repair a broken personality, repair a broken personality that has resulted from mislearned lessons. Um, an example of which being, well, no matter how hard I try, I can't seem to find a good job. As if that's kind of an empirical rule of the universe. And well, instead, it, it may be a mislearned lesson. It may be that that person doesn't have very good job seeking, job search skills. Um, in the tantras, we kind of go about this, we go for the same effect by a different path. What we say in the tantras is that, okay, well, I'm whatever age, 37 years old, 45 years old, whatever, 67 years old, uh, and here's my personality, and it's the result of a formation process over the lifespan, and I'm kind of just stuck with it. I might be able to change some things strategically if I'm you know, apply some effort, but I'm stuck with it. And in the tantras, on day one, you can say, okay, well, I have it on good authority that what I'm thinking of as my personality is really just something that has, it's a cumulative product of my experience in the context of ignorance of my true nature. So going forward from here, everything is on the table. If I say that I can't abstain from meat, well, fine. That I that that was the I when I started, that I sure fine. It could not it could not live without eating flesh meat. Uh, but I am not that I. I am of a manifestation of the uppercase I of the Supreme Divinity on an odyssey of experiencing the, it, the, the samsara world that it created and then finding its way eventually back home to unity in the Godhead. So that's my identity. And there's nothing about that particular identity uh, to suggest that I would require any one particular diet. If it is spiritually beneficial, if my guru says, hey, uh, you know, lay off the meat, Let's learn how to learn learn how to become perfectly nourished using just the dairy and the veggies and the nuts. Uh, I can't honestly say, oh well, I'm just not the kind of a person that could do that. I couldn't handle that. Well, my old I couldn't. Uh, no contest there. Agreed. But the new I is all powerful. It's limited only by its own ignorance, and the new I the manifestation of divine consciousness, uh, might as well enjoy rice and all uh, as, as 
with as much fervor as one would absorb, uh, you know, uh, with some, uh, I don't know, some prized cut of steak or something. The, the, the cosmic eye, the, the only eye that is, the supreme divinity, I don't think has any kind of a preference of diet. So as a result, my dietary practices right now are involved in constantly reminding me that the arbitrary I that I have created, the arbitrary identity that I've created, doesn't have to have a role uh, in choosing what I wear, what I eat, how I act. I have a great deal of freedom now that I, have, I couldn't possibly have had before. And this isn't something that happens as a result of 10 years of practice in, in Tibet. It's something that can be manifested in every human life just by virtue of deliberately choosing to begin the path. Um, so going back to, to Brahma, we have, we have kind of a, oh, it's probably an overly Western expression, but it, what's known as the Hindu trinity uh, a, schol a scholar would have a, a lot of objections to the use of that term, but it's used so widely, so I'll refer to it. Um, you have Brahma, the creator, or the manifester of samsara. You have Vishnu, the maintainer, and Shiva, uh, the transformer. Uh, oddly enough, Brahma doesn't have... Shiva's name means the consciousness of infinite goodness. Vishnu is a pretty nice guy too. Lord Vishnu is a is a family man. He's got a lovely wife. He lives in very comfortable circumstances. He has great love for his devotees, great love. Uh, and I, I think you could say that he was certainly aligned with what we would call in the West good or altruistic. Not so with Brahma. Uh, Brahma, because of his role as the manifester of duality, is neither good nor evil. And therefore, that answers the question that kind of probably came into everyone's mind as we were doing the reading. Uh, why on earth would Brahma give a boon to a known Asura? And now Asura is nothing more than a sentient being that has somehow grasped an understanding of what samsara is, and they've been able to use discipline uh, to strategically wipe out that false self, that arbitrary self, and in doing so, become a very, very powerful being. And that's what happens to everyone that that uh, gets rid of the false self, but some of those beings that make great spiritual progress, uh, because they're still beings in in duality here in samsara, they're not they're they're not good inclined. They're evil inclined. They're terrible. They're uh, they choose to become powerful demons, powerful asuras, and in the scriptures, over and over again, in different scriptures. You see uh, a very powerful being going to Brahma and asking for some sort of just an outrageous boon because he's gone through these horrific purifying austerities and Brahma grants the boon. And we can look, that, look at that as a, in a literal sense and it's interesting, right? Because it's a way of, it's looking at Brahma and his role in in sanatana dharma cosmology but that doesn't really have a that doesn't have a huge impact on on our daily life right how do we put that into practice how do we turn that that knowledge into something that's useful to us and here's how here's how we can do that for one thing uh one of the great mysteries uh in many religions, many great world religions, uh, that, that shows through in, in various scriptures. And it also shows up like, uh, you know, if you, 
if you've ever been around a group of older people uh, at lunch after they've, they've been at church, sometimes the conversation will hit on the idea uh, that I think comes in the, in the Proverbs and the Psalms of, of the scriptures of that religion, the problem of uh, how, why do we see evil men with great power and success? How, how is it, you know, Babaji was telling me on the radio the other day that uh, our karma is going to determine our life circumstances. So um, I want to believe Babaji, but what is it, what is, you know, he's talking about karma dictating life circumstances, and here's this perfectly awful person, uh, not guilty of one sin, but, uh, you know, uh, a lifetime of just, of just horrific behavior. How did this person become wealthy and powerful? The Shiva Mahapurana has an answer for this. Uh, and it, it does show up. It's not just in the Shiva Mahapurana. This shows up in a, a lot of original documents, or, original sources within the Sanatana Dharma scriptures. And the answer is that Brahma will give boons to all those willing to offer purifying austerities. Uh, so let's think about this for a moment. Even if the person doing it doesn't know who Brahma is, if they've somehow happened upon the, the wisdom that great purifying austerities dedicated to a certain purpose will result in great effects. And they use that knowledge in college and in their careers, uh, and they're not necessarily good guys, right? Maybe they cheat as much as they're legally allowed to cheat, and they make it to the top. And that's how you have the, quote, successful person who by all accounts, has incredibly stinky uh, karma. Brahma will grant a boon to an evil person if adequate purifying austerities have been uh, offered, and they don't even have to know who Brahma is. It's a deal that he makes to those who explicitly are aware of him and unaware of him. So that's how that happens. Now, we don't necessarily want to sign up on that plan, right? Because karma is immutable. And even if Brahma gives you a boon to go do some evil stuff and be a powerful evil person, uh, karma has not been suspended by Brahma, you see. Brahma is not a karma lawyer. He's a guy that will facilitate the transaction. That he'll facilitate the crime, but he won't, he won't come to get you out. Of jail. So if you are the rich and powerful evil person, uh, your karma will, will soon enough, with or without the boon, be manifested. In the, the story I was reading, um, I, I, won't, I won't be cruel and leave you guys hanging on the hook. In the story, in the passage we were reading from earlier, what happens is that uh, the the Ashura has craftily um, he he phrased the boon in such a way that something he thought was impossible would have to happen in order for anyone to kill him, and uh, ultimately Parvati and Shiva, of course, we know, do get married and uh, have a child, and the child slays the demon. So the demon. The demon seemed to be getting a, kar a karmic loophole by the Brahma boon. But nobody is immune to karma. Um, and so that's, a, that's when we're going through life. Uh, who was it? Albert Bandura, a great psychology researcher, said uh, he, he did a huge amount of research with what he called social learning. And that was children and later adults uh, observing the consequences of behavior that other people experienced. And that way they could learn from their own experiences, but they could also say, oh, okay, well, uh, Jim, I noticed 
didn't uh, want to go out with the guys on Saturday night. He said he was going to stay home and study for the chemistry test. And then on Monday morning, he took the chemistry test and he got the highest grade in the class and he got social accolades and felt great about it. And, and those of us that went to the party on Saturday night, you know, had different consequences that were, were not exactly terrific. And so now, from now on, I'm going to look at Jim's example and do that. We do that constantly, over and over and over again as we go through life. We learn from watching the consequences of others. But I would like to suggest that wisdom dictates that we, yes, look at the consequences of, of behaviors of others. We, As human animals, that's the way we learn about reality. That's how we decide what kind of behavior tendencies we're going to have is by watching others and, and their consequences that they, they achieve. But on, on a level that transcends that, we can also know that if we observe someone doing something that's karmically terrible and not experiencing consequences immediately, we don't want to be the naughty schoolboy that says, oh dear, I've noticed that this person has gotten away with it. I probably will be able to also. I, I don't... Uh, see, I'm not on the, the Brahma Boone thing. I'm, I'm running on kind of a, a, a pay-as-you-go karma plan right now. Uh, so I, I don't have a boon that's going to protect me if I swerve off. It, I'm going to experience this. The, the, in all likelihood, I'll experience the consequences uh, in, a, in a way that, uh, you know, that it, it is, is shocking and, and attention-getting. So this scripture, the scripture gives us an insight into why that would happen. Um, so let's go back to these purifying austerities that can create, in their extreme forms, uh, purifying austerities. Uh, and, you know, if you know exactly what you're doing uh, under a competent guide, purifying austerities can create superhumans. And the scriptures are, are, are living histories of how this has happened in the past. And if you go to India and you talk to people, I, you hear stories about purifying austerities creating very powerful beings in the present day, and it hasn't changed. There, there, uh, there is no analog to the the um, the age of miracles that one sees in Judeo Christianity. In Sanatana Dharma, every age is an age of miracles. Every time the the lie of the false self is rejected in 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 embracing, you know, being part of the inherent unity of all, uh, that's a miracle. And it has sometimes very astonishing, it can bend the laws of samsara. It's so powerful. Uh, why are purifying austerity so powerful? Why would the universe be designed in such a way? Because they, they're techniques that have been given to us by the gods to eat away at arbitrary self. Um, remember, we create our sense of self because we need to construct an identity. But the true identity is that I am an expression of divine consciousness in samsara. Um, and I hammer on that a lot, right? Because it's a key concept. Without that, without that, uh, it's like it's like the Achilles tendon of a student being cut. That is the fundamental theorem of Tantra. We are nodes of divine consciousness. Um, and there are specific practices that are very good at helping us to realize that understanding at a, a very deep level. So if I understand that I'm a... Uh, an incarnation of divine consciousness. That is very empowering. And that's where the power that you see in the scriptures, that's where the true power of these Brahma boons uh, comes from. Because a being 
in the process of performing these purifying austerities, has had the personal re revelation that they are capable of doing anything for any length of time because they are one and the same as the source of all. Of course, that's going to be very empowering. So purifying austerities, if we're looking for a model in the West that's familiar, I'll tell you what it is. It's military boot camp. Uh, it's kind of, the, in a way, you're doing the opposite of what a young soldier or sailor or marine or airman does in boot camp, though. They are in the process of abandoning their civilian identities to embrace their new military identities. The, the yogi is not doing exactly the same thing. The yogi is undergoing physical hardship and following other, the directions of another in order to escape the, uh, the illusion that an identity is necessary. Uh, but that's worth the trouble because once you lose that, that's the lead shoes that we're all walking around wearing. After that, as, as, as the clinging, the attachment to some arbitrarily crafted identity loosens, uh, because my guru said, okay, uh, now it's, uh, it's Shivratri. So what you're going to do is you're going to go out to your fire pit, to the Havan, and you're going to fast uh, all day, and then at, beginning at sunset, you're going to begin this specific fire puja and fire sacrifice ritual that is contained in this 452-page book. And you're just going to sit there in the early spring cold and the dark, and you're going to chant that. And uh, did I mention that you're going to be throwing rice into the fire so much that your arm is going to feel like it's on fire? But it's not the heat from the, the fire in front of you. It's the lactic acid from the oxygen-starved arm that's been throwing rice for a long time. Why is that necessary? It's necessary because it's battery acid that eats away the plaques on my spiritual eyes, on my spiritual identity. And once those are gone, there's nothing left but the divine to shine through. How many of those experiences do I need before I have the experience of union that doesn't take a break anymore? I think it varies by individual. It varies by the individual's attachment to a particular arbitrary identity. So uh, the, the answer is, though, a lot of it. A lot of nights, just you and the sky, the ground, and the fire, and Shiva. Um, but it's worth doing because you're no longer limited by mortality. You're no longer limited by fear. You're no longer limited by uh, childish yearnings, you're not on the hamster wheel of desire anymore. You don't sit around worrying about anything because you already have everything you want. Now the question can turn to, all right, what do I do if I have everything I want? Not especially, not, not in, in, in terms of materiality, but in terms of the consciousness that I'm enjoying every day, all day. How do I respond to giving how do I respond to that kind of a gift? Because even, even though it was a conscious decision to sit by the sacred fire, feeding it all night for night after night after night, ultimately the whole process, the ability to complete the process, came from Shiva coaching me gently and saying, now, okay, now you've been doing the 30-minute puja every morning for a while now, uh, I, I think maybe it's time for you to, to start going to about six hours a day. And often I get that feeling from Shiva at the altar, and then my guru would show up and say the same exact thing. I think it's about time for you to boost up now. You're ready. You're getting stronger. So I have, in the, in the old sense of, of I as individual, differentiated from all else, have done nothing. I, as the universal self manifesting in one instance, 
can do great, wonderful things. And there's no difference between beings. There is no, uh, there is no birth aristocracy uh, in spirituality, in the tantras. No one is more likely to get this than anyone else. It's an individual jiva, an individual instance of divine consciousness in samsara, deliberately saying, I am willing to lose my attachments. What I truly want is to be happy. Attachments are a source of suffering for me. Therefore, I am willing to lose the attachments. Furthermore, I've chosen as a helper a deity named Shiva, a deity named uh, Kali, a deity named Krishna, a, a deity named Hanuman, a deity named Ganesha, a deity named uh, Durga, to coach me and empower me to hold my hands as I learn how to walk spiritually and to cheer me as I learn how to run. And then, then, one day, to celebrate as I learn how to fly. That's what Lord Shiva has been for me. A friend, a coach, a parent. And we're all absolutely the same at the core. Absolutely the same. There is no inborn ability in, in, in the spiritual life. It's just simply a, a being saying, I am, am willing to trade in a set of illusions for a set of realities. And that's a pretty good trade. There's nothing wrong with that. <clears throat> so here we are at the 57-minute mark. I think not everyone that's listening today is a student, but if you are a student, if you are in the exploratory stages of looking for the, the ancient truths of the original religion, Sanatana Dharma, or, or if you're not, if you have a different religious context, that's fine too, because this will still work. Here's the homework. Go to the internet and research your deity. Uh, don't get too attached to any one source, but use the different sources together to get a composite understanding of, of your deity's likes and dislikes. Because your deities, uh, well, I think anything that has a personality has a personhood. And your deity has a personality. Shiva has likes and dislikes. Kali has likes and different likes. When I'm at the altar and I'm worshiping Lord Shiva, uh, I literally offer slightly different offerings to Shiva than I do to Kali, just as if you had a beloved aunt and uncle and you knew that your, your uncle enjoyed uh, vanilla ice cream and your aunt enjoyed chocolate, and so you bring a container of each. You, you love each one in terms of honoring their preferences. Um, and in, in, that's where the personal relationship with Shiva comes in, with, with Krishna, with Hanuman. Um, okay, so we're going to close today with a reading from the Shiva Purana uh, about the importance of wearing a little sacred ash on your forehead, wearing a Rudraksha Mala, uh, and possessing the name of Lord Shiva on your lips, or whoever your whoever your deity is. So I'll just read this paragraph, and we'll close with that. The name of Shiva is as sacred as Ganges. Similarly, sacred ash, Basam, and Rudraksha are as holy as River Yamuna and Sarasvati, respectively. Therefore, a devotee who possesses the name of Shiva on his lips, who applies Basam on his person, and who wears a Rudraksha in his neck, on his neck, attain the virtue similar to that of taking a bath in the Sangam. In the ancient time, a king by the name of Indra Yamna got liberated from the bondages of the world just by chanting the name of Shiva. Om Namah Shivaya. 
ओम नमः शिवाय ओम नमः शिवाय ओम नमः शिवाय ओम नमः शिवाय